Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we're continuing our series, Upholding the Truth. So turning your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 to 11, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Faithful to Your Calling. Our text today is 1 Timothy 1, 3 to 7. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. The story is told of an 11th century German king, King Henry III. He had grown very weary of court life and the pressures of being king, so he applied to a local monastery to be accepted for a life of contemplation. The religious superior of the monastery, a Prior Richard is reported to have said, Your Majesty, do you understand that the pledge here is one of obedience, and that will be hard for you who have been a king? And Henry replied, I understand the rest of my life. I will be obedient to you as Christ leads you. So Prior Richard answered, Then accept my first instruction. Go back to your throne and serve faithfully in the place where God has placed you. See, in many ways, that was very much like Paul's instructions to Timothy. I get a sense from reading verse 3 that Paul had to urge Timothy to remain in Ephesus. Perhaps he didn't want to stay there. It must have been a very difficult assignment. There were strong-willed leaders in the church there, and Paul was saying, remember what I told you, you have to take those boys down. If you think that's easy, well, that's only because you've never tried it. You've never been a pastor of a local church. Look ahead to 1 Timothy 4, verse 12. There Paul writes, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. See, Timothy was young, and hence, some were prone not to take him seriously. And I have no doubt he was stinging from unjust criticism. The false teachers were bold, and Timothy had a job assignment to take them on. And it must have been difficult for him to stay. Why not find a church, you know, a little easier to serve, and then have a fruitful ministry there? I mean, who needs this mess? But Paul writes him, urging him not to quit and run. How hard it was to be obedient. How hard it must have been just to stay. Now, I'm so glad Timothy stayed. I mean, for one, his life is an example to every Christian that ever gets a tough assignment from God. Just because the assignment is tough doesn't mean it's not from God. Perhaps someone right now needs to hear that. There are some who need to be urged not to cut and run. You needn't be a pastor to hear this. And for those of you who are married, don't you cut and run. Your children need you, and your endearing faithfulness to your wife or husband over the hard years will reap a great reward in the end if you trust Christ. Those of you who have taught in Sunday school or served as a deacon or used your secular workplace as a way to enter into the lives of needy people and show them what Christ has to offer, and yet the devil has shot his fiery darts at you, and now you're tired and you're wishing for something else. So ask yourself some very important questions, would you? Look, I'm not saying that there's never a time to make a change. See, I know that. 
But before you make the change, ask what you felt called to do in the first place. And what's changed since then? Is it only because it's hard? If that's the only reason, are you right in cutting and running? See, in Timothy's case, it was hard. But Paul was insisting, stay put. And we all need to learn from that. And secondly, we we learn from Paul and Timothy in this letter what a portrait of faithful service looks like. See, 1 Timothy not only shows us what was wrong with the church in Ephesus, but by contrast, by what Paul wants Timothy to accomplish, this book also shows us what God wants in a church. Or from this book, we see a portrait of a faithful church. So let's start again in verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Anyone reading this will quickly see that the key problem here revolves around the phrase certain persons. And notice verse 6 where where Paul uses that phrase again. So who are these certain persons? Well, if you go ahead to chapter 1 verse 19b to 20, Some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. We'll come to that later. But I have no doubt that those two men were among the certain persons. But there's a conundrum here. Handing someone over to Satan, as we're going to see later, is a reference to excommunication. And this same phrase is used in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 4, and 5. It says, When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Well, notice the difference between those two passages. In 1 Corinthians, it's the church that is to take such an action when they're gathered together. They're to decide together. And yet here in 1 Timothy, it is Paul who alone by himself takes the action. So what's the difference? Well, there can be only one answer. In 1 Timothy, Hymenaeus and Alexander were in fact elders. And the church in Ephesus was not capable of opposing the powerful leaders who were their teachers. This is further supported by Paul's last words to the Ephesian elders. It's a prophecy that he had made years earlier, and it's found in Acts 20, 29 to 30. There Paul said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. See, that's the situation in Ephesus. Key leaders, elders, pastors were twisting scripture, drawing disciples away from Jesus and making them disciples of themselves. And when you think about it, that's the most frightening thing that can happen to a local church. And, and it does happen. And when it does, the local congregation is almost helpless against this. So what were they teaching? Well, first of all, from verse 3, we find that they're teaching different doctrines. Now, this term, different doctrine, is one word in the Greek. It's heterodidaskalein. It's a word that Paul uses only once in all of his writings right here. And some scholars believe that he likely invented the word. Heteros means different, and didaskalein means teaching or doctrine. We get our English word heterodox and orthodox from this word. So let me explain. In 2 Corinthians, Paul speaks of those who teach a different or a heteros Jesus. And in Galatians, he speaks about those who preach a different or a heteros gospel. In another place, he speaks about those who have a different or a heteros spirit. 
The idea behind this is that there is only one true Jesus, one true gospel, one true evangelical spirit, one true doctrine. There's only one orthodoxy. Everything else is heterodoxy. I know this is disturbing for some people. They hate to be told that's wrong. Instead, they believe that no one has the right to say what should or should not be believed and that everyone has the perfect right to hold whatever doctrine they want. But that's called heterodoxy or a different doctrine. But different from what? Well, different from the doctrine about Jesus and the cross that was given to us by the apostles in Scripture. See, I've often heard people say, we don't teach doctrine, we just teach Jesus. And Paul would answer, well, what Jesus are you preaching? You see, doctrine means teaching. Any teaching that is other than the teaching or doctrine of the apostles and the prophets is a different doctrine. And in today's language, we would call that heterodoxy as opposed to orthodoxy. And according to 1 Timothy, that's a problem. See, we can't be completely sure what these elders were teaching, but we have some hints. Look again at the first part of verse 4. Nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. See, we do know that certain Jewish books available at that time, like, for instance, a book called the Book of Jubilees, often read by a certain sect of Jewish believers, were filled with myths and fanciful stories about Bible characters. And these stories became so popular, they created their own speculations and took people away from what Paul calls the stewardship from God. That is, it would take people away from the obedience of faith that is in Jesus. Now look, we have tons of the same things happening today. I I would say the Book of Mormon. It's a myth without any historical evidence. That would be one example of myths that entrap people and take them away from the truth and then lead to endless speculations. An integral goal of this ministry is to ensure that Bible teaching you can trust is available to as many people in as many places in as many ways as possible. That's why we emphasize a diversity of unique Bible teaching and engagement resources available through a variety of mediums, radio, online, free mobile applications, YouTube, just to name a few. Providing these resources ensures that anyone who desires to hear the gospel can do so at their convenience and at no cost. We're grateful for the incredible opportunity that's ours to share the gospel in your community, across Canada and around the world. But this couldn't happen without like-minded friends, partners and donors across the country. This Thanksgiving, we say thank you for blessing us and in turn we pray that this ministry continues to bless all those searching to know Jesus better. For more information about Back to the Bible Canada, or to offer a gift of support, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. There are a great number of examples of myths that circulate among Christians, causing them to be you know, distracted from the truth. For instance, it's been a number of years ago now when a book called The Bible Code came out and they said that if you, you know, arrange the letters of the Bible and give them, you know, numeric values, that you'll find predictions to such things as, you know, the first Gulf War against Iraq and the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin of Israel. 
You know, I've seen some books that teach you how to diet using the diet of Jesus or the diet of Israel coming out of Exodus. I mean, wouldn't you just, you know, love to lose weight by eating just like Jesus? And I've known some Christians who spend time identifying the the 10 lost tribes of Israel. Other Christians are busy telling you where the Ark of the Covenant is found, and still others point to any happening in the Middle East and, and show that this fits to a prophetic calendar. Then there are others who claim to have gone to heaven or to hell, you know, for half a day. And they'll give you all the inside scoop of what's going on. I mean, endless myths, fanciful stories capture the minds of the gullible and reduce the Christian faith to wildly speculative accounts. And all of this takes us away from learning how to live out obedience and faith. It disconnects us from a fascination with this one book, the Bible and making it the subject of a lifetime of study and spending a lifetime learning its principles. And instead, we spend our time in matters not addressed by the Bible. They are another heteros, another doctrine added to the one doctrine, heterodoxy rather than orthodoxy. And here's what Paul says to Timothy, charge them to stop. Look again at verse 3b, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And the Greek word is a strong word, command them, order them. The word is a word that has an image of an order from a superior to an inferior. You don't invite them to a discussion. You don't even debate them. Now, now, debate is, of course, a very effective tool in the right setting. But for those in leadership of a local church who want to teach, well, you have to take authority over them and silence them. You know, some denominations have effective means to make that happen when a local church is led by heterodox leaders. And whatever the means, this matter must not be neglected. And so this is the key to a balanced and faithful church in Jesus. A faithful church opposes all doctrines that are added to the scripture. For instance, from the pulpit, no church should ever tolerate a preacher who says, God showed me something. And well, I don't mean that God doesn't show people things, but Preaching is to be devoted to the doctrine of the apostles and the prophets, that is, to sacred scripture and never to private revelation. This practice of private revelation in the pulpit must be stopped no matter the cost. Why? Because God demands it. Now, how many of you have heard of churches who are careful never to allow for heterodoxy? There are lots of churches like that. How many of you know that there is an inherent danger in doing that? See, even while it's commanded that we must stop false teachers and false teaching, we must also know that the enemy of our souls seeks to destroy us in this very act of obedience. See, many years after Paul wrote Timothy, the Ephesian church had finished its battle with false teachers, and interestingly enough, they won. And in Revelation, Jesus speaks to the Ephesian church. So Revelation 2 verse 2 says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So reading that, you might say, hey, everything is fine now. Wow. Revelation 2 verse 4 says, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. You see what happened? First, a church takes action to ensure that their doctrines remain pure and orthodox, but then in the process, they become, well, suspicious always ready to accuse anyone of heresy at a moment's notice. And the consequence, love is gone. So is mercy and grace and acceptance. And Paul anticipated that problem. Look again at verse 5. The aim of our charge is love, 
that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. See, every church must remember that the goal of defending true doctrine is to be created in an atmosphere where love can live. We're not called to look for fights. We're not called to put people in their place. We're called to create an environment where God is honored as supreme and where we find a delight in him who has revealed himself in his word and where because of that, men and women can find grace and mercy and peace in their time of need. We defend biblical doctrine because biblical doctrine alone creates an environment of love, love for God and love for one another. And that is love. That love is from a pure heart, which means our entire personality is now undefiled. That love is from a clean conscience, which means that we have not violated right standards or truth to obtain it. And that love is a sincere faith, meaning that it's a real faith, not something that men have dreamed up. So please remember, I said there's always a balance. First, that we must oppose false doctrines but we must also promote a spirit of biblical love. And when I say it's a balance, I don't mean a 50-50 thing. Instead, I mean like marriage, it's a 100-100 thing. We fully oppose false teaching and we fully promote biblical love, believing it's never necessary to choose one over the other. And now to verse six. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion. So from this verse, let's, let's discuss what happens when we get out of balance. First, minor matters become the main thing. And Paul uses the term vain discussion. The word means empty, useless, fruitless discussions. It's the kind of talk that leads nowhere. I have a very dear mentor who used to always say, make sure the main thing is the main thing. The cross, well, that's the main thing. Knowing Jesus and living in full trust and confidence in him, that's the main thing. Reaching out to the lost is the main thing. Fidelity to the Word of God is the main thing. Glorifying God, that's the main thing. Love is the main thing. But when we don't guard the main thing, we find ourselves veering off into minor matters. That's the first thing that happens. Now, verse 7a, desiring to be teachers of the law. Ah, In chapter 3, Paul will say that if anyone desires to be an elder, he desires a noble task. The teachers that we'll encounter in the book of 1 Timothy are elders. Now, of course, we'll have to spend some time investigating what Paul refers to when he speaks of elders. And when we do that, we're going to have to be careful, won't we? Not to read our way of doing church back into the text. I mean, we don't start by saying, oh, I know how to understand an elder because we have elders, so that's what Paul must have meant by elders. See, for Paul, elders were the teachers and preachers of the congregation who were also charged with giving leadership. Let me say it again. The elders were the teachers and preachers of the congregation who were also charged with giving leadership to the whole church. Now get that into your head, and with that, we understand the beginning of verse 7. There were those who taught a heterodox doctrine, who wanted to be teachers of the law in the church of Ephesus. That's to say, they wanted to be elders, those whose primary role was to teach and to preach and to give leadership. And that, as we will see, was the issue that a faithful church needed to address. If the wrong people are put into primary leadership, the entire church stumbles, and in some cases, the proclamation of the truth of Jesus crashes to the ground. Let me tell you, from my perspective, that's one of the gravest dangers to the local church. It's the men who are very gifted communicators, but who will not 
limit themselves to the word. And so the faithful church must begin not by being mesmerized by how gifted or how capable or how willing some people are to serve, but rather to seek to know how to evaluate who is faithful to the word, both in their doctrine and in their lifestyle. Put the wrong people into primary leadership and the church stumbles. Her witness falters. False teaching grows. Failure to understand her mission now becomes endemic, and the community as a whole has no idea of what God is saying to them. And so says Paul to Timothy, your job is to fix that in Ephesus and to remain faithful. For the church in Ephesus must be faithful, and you, Timothy, must be faithful in the task that God has uniquely called you to do as you shepherd that church. Don't you run away from your assignment. It may be hard, and it may mean that you're criticized constantly, but don't you leave your post. And that's the same for all of us. Do what God has called you to do, regardless of how difficult it is and remain faithful to the Word of God, and stay away from doing that which is in contradiction to the revealed will of God. No one can be faithful to God while denying His Word. Simply be faithful to your calling. And the good news is that the people in your wider community will hear the Word of the living God. John, thanks so much for your message today. I just want to get some clarity, though. We chatted about the term heterodoxy. Does the church absolutely need to agree on every aspect of doctrine? Yeah, of course, we never have throughout the history of the church. However, having said that, that's really a dangerous half-truth. You know, the reality is that throughout the history of the church, the main thing became the main thing. I mean, we agree that there is but one God who reveals himself in three distinct persons. This is a part of the central nature of our faith. Jesus, both fully God and fully man. Christ dying on the cross provided a substitutionary atonement for our sins. There are a number of issues that we have agreed on. So while we may disagree on some of the periphery, we do not disagree on the central core. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Upholding the Truth, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. You may think that estate planning is only for the wealthy, but decisions about your home, family, your retirement, or even how you'd like to see your money used for ministry and for the kingdom. Well, that's important. Back to the Bible Canada has partnered with Advisors with Purpose to help you start and discuss those important decisions. Their trained estate specialists are available to meet you by phone and provide you with the information to make the best decisions possible for you and your family. As a result of our partnership, Advisors with Purpose has made their services free and confidential to you alone, leaving you free from any obligation. It's never too early to plan for your future, so call them today. To speak to an estate specialist today, call 1-866-336-3315. That's one 866 
336-3315 or visit advisorswithpurpose.ca for your free and confidential consult.